Hello, and welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We have a great show for you today. We have once again cobbled together an episode remotely due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic quarantine situation. Uh, So while you are hearing this on Sunday, April 19th, 2020, the stories and audio you are hearing from the wonderful members of our team come from the last few days, um, so prior to this current moment. Uh, We're finding ways to make this work with our new normal format, and we keep pushing this proverbial baby out each week, and we hope you continue to find it engaging and informative. So I am Emily Scott, and I actually have the first story today, and it's a local New York City one. So this story comes primarily from an April 14th piece titled uh, Memo Ordering NYC Schools to Keep Virus Cases Quiet Probed by Greg B. Smith, um, as well as an earlier piece by Smith and an essay, Alum Hence, and apologies if I'm pronouncing that wrong, and there was also additional reporting by Ben Frachtenberg. And both reports are from an outlet called The City that you should definitely check out if you don't know it already. It's um, described as uh, self-described, I guess, but um, it's an independent nonprofit news outlet dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York, and we need that more than ever these days. Um, But back to the story, um, which is a fairly disturbing one, although also a pretty classic one. Um, So back in March, uh, the city outlet published a report on an internal memo that was sent out by the Department of Education in the chaotic days before New York City schools uh, were closed. The memo, uh, quote, lists a number of precautions to stem the spread of the virus, but explicitly makes clear the City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, the command center for tracking the virus in New York City, should not be contacted. Um, And that was all a quote from the article. Um, The exact wording in the memo from March 10th was, quote, at the moment, there is no reason for any school to call DOHMH, which is the Department of uh, Mental Health, uh, Health and Mental Hygiene, um, to report potential or confirmed cases. DOHMH is receiving information about positive test results strictly from laboratories. We can support our colleagues at DOHMH by keeping their phones clear to speak with laboratories, end quote. Um, and now in response, in response to the reporting by this outlet, the Special Commissioner for Investigations for City Schools, which is a, a thing I didn't know existed, but I'm glad to hear it does, is looking into the memo and, quote, whether it contributed to the spread of the virus within schools before Mayor Bill de Blasio reluctantly announced on March 15th that schools would be shuttered, end quote. That's from the city, too, um, the outlet. So Councilmember Robert Holden believes the memo was meant as an intentional cover-up of how widespread the virus already was within schools as a way to justify keeping them open. He said, quote, this is the DOE's MO. This is how they operate. They were trying to cover up. They were saying to us, they want to cover this up. We don't want to cause mass hysteria, end quote. So schools chancellor Richard Carranza defended the memo by saying, quote, with increasing numbers of people coming out, we don't, what we don't want to do is inundate the Department of Health with these cases, end quote. And I don't know about you, uh, that sounds like grade A bullshit to me <laughs> about not wanting to, like, overwhelm an organ- uh, a, you know, an institution that's meant to track these numbers with too many numbers. Um, so the decision to leave the schools open as long as they were may have cost people their lives. As of April 14th, the Department of Education confirmed that 21 teachers and an additional 29 public school staff members have died from COVID-19. But okay, 
while it might be deliciously satisfying to try and totally villainize an institution trying to initiate a cover-up, the reasoning behind a push to keep schools open may be more nuanced. While there may be some nefarious financial or bureaucratic reason that I don't know about or really understand, there are also many public school students that rely on the meals provided at school in order to eat, and many parents that need to work and have no other options for childcare. I mean, New York City schools basically never close. Between 1978 and 2014, there were a total of just 11 snow days. I probably had more than that in the four years I was at my public high school in the suburbs. So this is a somewhat complicated story, but I thought it was an important one to share for a couple of reasons. It highlights the fact that pushes for secrecy happen everywhere, even when there might be deadly consequences. And it also showcases the vital importance of local journalism in our world. If the city hadn't, if the city of the outlet hadn't reported on the memo last month, maybe there wouldn't uh, be an investigation going on now. Um, and again, of course, how you know complicated the reasoning behind a push for secrecy may be. Um, you know, and how we can be trying to fight for something we believe is good while overlooking the negative consequences of that, you know, that push. Um, yeah. So support local journalism and keep your leaders accountable. Uh, up next, we have Matt with a few stories, and he's even got some nice original backing music he made in there. So enjoy that. Hello, hello, hello. This is Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Matthew. I'm part of Objection to the Rule, where a nice round table of contributors put together news recaps, local, national, and global. All the olds, <laughs> local, national, global. Um, obviously, because of the coronavirus, we are scattered throughout Brooklyn. On this Sunday, um, but we all put together little little recaps of the stories, and um, here's mine. Here, well, this is a local story, <clears throat> all about food, food delivery services. It comes from uh, the Gothamist. Now, in between bits of escapism, which has mostly for me been Star Trek Discovery, which I thought was a bit too serious, and the Kling Klingons looked a bit too gross, but I still thought it was fun. And they finally have some, like, a full-blown uh, gay character and his boyfriend, and they are wonderful. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. If you're into Star Trek, whatever, if you got the time. I also watched Star Trek Picard, which was I had no expectations for, which was great, and it was a blast. I had a, I had a wonderful time. And turns out Seven of Nine, the uh, Borg woman, is uh, into women as well, so it's nice that the show is finally... Uh, being as gay as it always was. <laughs> uh, it's beautiful. But while I was watching these shows, uh, the little ads would pop up um, in between them. And the ad breaks, as they are called. And one in, one ad in particular, a Grubhub ad, kept popping up. And at first I thought it was just a PSA because it didn't have the Grubhub logo on it. And I thought it was just a PSA to like support restaurants. But then I noticed the little Grubhub logo at the end. And I thought, oh, this is Grubhub trying to make some money off the virus. But then, you know, no, they're not. It's okay. You can be a business and make money uh, during a pandemic. But my antenna had to kind of perked up a little bit. Like, are they exploiting this? Well, the Gothamist reports that they might be. Quote, 
Three New York delivery app customers sued Grubhub, DoorDash, Postmates, and Uber Eats, alleging the companies charged restaurants exorbitant, exorbitant prices, I'm sorry, exorbitant fees and have violated antitrust laws. The suit also alleges the apps require restaurants to agree to a clause that prevents restaurants from charging different prices to meal delivery customers than dine-in customers, despite higher fees to use the delivery services, end quote. So, this is less about the pandemic and more about how the new economy works and how we, the people, the government, the people that elect the government, have not adapted to the new forms of commerce, in particular, the app-based economy and the gig economy. Quote, the pandemic has made what's been going on for four or five years much worse, end quote, said antitrust lawyer who filed the lawsuit, Gregory Frank. Now, how are these delivery apps unfair to restaurants? What is the actual suit about? Quote, the lawsuit says the delivery apps offer restaurants a devil's choice in exchange for permission to participate in their meal delivery monopolies. Restaurants must charge supra competitive prices to customers who do not buy their meals through the delivery apps, ultimately driving those customers to their platforms so the apps are able to control the prices of the food which controls the customer's choices. The app gets a cut of the bill, but the restaurant, who actually has to do the actual work, order the food, make the food, stock the food, they have to pay the price by having that lower cost. They have to, ready for a super fun, eat the cost. I'm very sorry for that. However, in response to the pandemic and to avoid clams of profiteering off a crisis, all four of the delivery apps, I wouldn't call them delivery services because they don't actually deliver, the drivers do the delivering, but that's another story. All of the apps have programs set up to waive the normal fees restaurants pay when they use the app. Most of these deals are limited to certain qualifying restaurants or have a limited amount of time Involved, So they waive the fee just for one month or you have to sign up before a certain date. So the apps, all of them are doing something to keep from overly exploiting restaurants. So it doesn't look like they're, you know, profiteering is the word that we, we use to describe um, immoral capitalism during a crisis. But I don't think this has to do with the crisis. I think the issue has to do with the fact that the app exists. If it were illegal for these apps to pressure restaurants into lowering their prices, then the apps wouldn't exist as a nationwide for-profit business because there wouldn't be any money or enough money if one of the main tactics of making money wasn't legal. And instead, we could have smaller government or industry-made apps to do the job instead. That's my idea. And so maybe these government-run or industry-created apps 
Maybe they would be shittier. They probably would be shittier. But the food would be better. I'm gonna keep it going. I'm still Matthew. Matthew Schneeman. <laughs> this is still Objection to the Rule and this is still on Radio Free Brooklyn. Next up is a national story. It's actually an essay I wrote, essay I wrote about the coronavirus and women. Uh, but before that, I'll do a short little plug. I have a show out right now called At Night I Fly. It's a podcast that I do. It's a limited series with the uh, poet journalist Spoon Jackson, who has been incarcerated for the past 42 years, currently serving a life sentence. In that time, he's become a poet and a journalist and our show is kind of a kind of a musical sound designy retrospective of his work of his poetry and I really do think it's a beautiful show and so please check it out um, I would I would love to share with the world what I've learned from Spoon it's called at night I fly type it into any podcast platform that you use okay national here's an essay I wrote called The Coronavirus and Women. <laughs> I call it that because I don't have a good title. Okay. God bless the heroic healthcare workers on the front lines fighting this war in hospitals, on the battlefields that are the public clinics, the trenches that are uh, pharmacies, emergency rooms. You get the idea. It's a war and we're so grateful for the men and women that are fighting it for us. Well, it's not that they volunteer. Conscription may be a better word. And it's not really men and women, it's mostly women. The U.S. Census says that of healthcare workers, around 75% of them are women. The U.S. Bureau of Statistics, my favorite bureau, by the way, numbers, graphs, more numbers. They put it at around 80%. Apologies to the non-binary people who go uncounted. The male-slash-female dynamic is fucked up enough, so it'll be some years before we remedy the ignorant uh, presumption that we do live on a gender-based um, spectrum. So please be patient with us. We're trying. Anyway, healthcare workers are mostly women, which means women are fighting this war, which makes sense in a way, because men have traditionally fought the real wars, the war wars, and most of those wars were dumb as shit. Iraq and Afghanistan gave us ISIS, Syria was just a bunch of rich nations betting on some poorer countries like drunk assholes watching a cockfight. The Korean War with America being nervous Korea would become Chinese, and China nervous Korea would become American. The Vietnam War was, well, if it took Ken Burns 10 hours to define it, I don't think I should do it in one sentence. So mostly dumb wars. And when there's a war that makes sense, all of a sudden, we become pacifists. It took the Holocaust and deaths of over 20 million Soviets for us to get into World War II. And even then, it still took Pearl Harbor. It took a direct attack. Now, I'm minimizing the confusing and difficulties of global politics and how the military works, but if they get half our discretionary spending and over $700 billion a year, then I get to be a bit reductive sometimes. In fact, every war before World War I was just rich people launching poor people across moats at each other. 
and I wrote, it was just rich people launching poor people across moats at other rich people's poor people, just to piss them off, the rich people. The evil wars that preceded the 1900s were just called conquests, or expansion, or just empire. My point is, if men fight all the dumb wars, my apologies to the women of the armed forces, the women of Israel, and, the, and other integrated armed forces, then it makes sense that women will fight a war that actually does make sense. I don't know how much all that makes sense. I'm saying men fight dumb wars, and now right now because healthcare workers are skew female, and the females are fighting a war that makes sense. Okay, I've been thinking a lot about women and the coronavirus for another reason. I'll convey this observation in a little story. About two weeks into the outbreak, I realized that my roommate's interest in my safety, the way that she bought me some hand sanitizer, would recommend face masks, um, scorned me for touching a box that was delivered while I was eating because she was nervous I would get sick from get the virus from the box. I, I noticed that she wasn't interested in my safety, but her own. I saw her seeing my body as a threat. And it was. I mean, it is. We still are in COVID land, and as I write this, I work at a women's shelter, and the last eight, and in the last week, eight people died from the virus there. I don't go into work that much because I work in housing placement, but I'm exposed. The observation is not to criticize my roommate for being nervous about my highly communicable virus, but to show you that when I saw my housemate staring at my arms, judging them, judging my body, I, a white male from the middle class, for the first time in my life, felt like my body wasn't my own. Now, if I go outside without wearing a mask and feel the full weight of judgment for what I'm wearing, that's a new thing. I've never been judged for what I wear or don't wear. Sure, sometimes I feel judged for being a bit underdressed, but not, I've never felt shame for being underdressed. That is until the coronavirus. I didn't know what it was like for my body to not be my own. To be looked at like that. To be looked at like my body. I always had an essence to me because I haven't been objectified. And I finally am. And it's not great. So am I equating sexism with the coronavirus? Sure, why not? Gender-based violence kills a lot of people. In 2017, 50,000 women were killed by their partners or family members. Sexism also fucks with the economy in ways comparable to the coronavirus because women's lib, as they used to call it, I guess they didn't want to waste any time saying the full word liberation once liberation occurred. I sure as shit wouldn't. Women's lib showed that the economy is weaker when half the population is scorned from large swaths of employment and patronage. So yeah, I think the virus and sexism are both shitty for the world. But the virus and sexism aren't the same, just like how a pandemic and a war are not the same. Sexism and war have much more to do with each other 
than the virus has to do with either of them. Sexism and war are about hierarchy, toxic masculinity, and male power. The virus is just an inanimate piece of code that is accidentally agitate, <laughs> that accidentally agitates us a bit too much. So maybe instead of comparing our efforts to combat the coronavirus as a war effort, we should just call it an effort. Because trying effort is the only thing that will help us defeat the sexism, stupid wars, and the coronavirus. I hope this piece wasn't too preachy or naive or whatever. But those are just some thoughts. My other co-hosts will be delivering wonderful recaps of other stories about what's going on across the world and in your own backyard. And I look forward to hearing them. So, other co-hosts, take it away. Thank you very much, and thank you, Emily, again for editing this. What's up, y'all? Happy Sunday. This is Teresa here to take you into a musical break. Our first song today is by the illustrious Miss Nina Simone. This is her 1965 classic, Feeling Good. We'll be right back. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me, yeah. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. New life for me. Ooh, 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 ooh. And I'm feeling good. Fish in the sea, you know how I feel. River running free. Fly out in the sun, you know what I mean, don't you know? Butterflies all having fun, you know what I mean? Sleep in peace when day is done, that's what I mean. And this old world is a new world and a bold world for me. shine, you know how I feel, send out the pine, you know how I feel, oh, freedom is mine, and I know how I feel, it's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, your live Sunday morning news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for some national news. Hello, this is Jasmine from Objection to the Rule, your weekly Sunday news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm recording this segment with my cat on Friday, April 17th, 2020. And the article that I decided to share with you all today was written yesterday, April 17th. But you all will be hearing this in two days on April the 19th, a Sunday. So this is from NPR. The title of this article is A Perfect Storm. Extremists Look for Ways to Exploit Coronavirus Pandemic by Hannah Alam. Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, Alam, A-L-L-A-M. So she writes that Timothy Wilson, a white Missouri resident in his mid-30s, began collecting bomb-making supplies months ago, and he had a plan to blow up either a synagogue, a mosque, or a majority black elementary school. With news of shelter-in-place orders taking effect across the country to control the spread of the novel coronavirus, Wilson decided to plan an attack before Kansas City's stay-at-home order was enacted on March 24th. According to the FBI, which had been monitoring him, Wilson was going to bomb a Missouri hospital where COVID-19 patients were being treated. Before he got a chance to actually blow up the hospital, Wilson was killed in a shootout when federal agents came to arrest him. The FBI had been investigating Wilson for um, six months at that point. People who research extremism are warning against ignoring incidents like this. Um, Most of us, especially if you're someone who listens to our podcast, like we're aware that far-right racist and anti-Semitic violence has been on the rise since the 2016 election. But acts of domestic terror from these groups are being drowned out by news related to the pandemic. And, you know, to be honest, um, even before the election, I understand for a lot of people, the election of Trump was a flashpoint or it made them aware of a lot of things that are happening in this country that maybe didn't touch them before. But long before the election and definitely long before COVID-19 arrived in the United States, White nationalist violence has not gotten anywhere near the same amount of coverage as real or alleged Islamist terror in the media. It's not taken as seriously. And I would also argue that people tend to see it as um, these types of attacks or plans tend to be painted as lone wolf, like, oh, this person was sick, this individual had problems instead of seeing it for what it is, like a manifestation of a large organized effort to bring about a white nationalist state. What's different for right now is that far-right militants are looking for ways to exploit the COVID crisis we're going through right now with um, upping recruitment and using accelerationalist rhetoric These groups are behind attacks against Asian Americans, memes that are blaming Jewish people for the violence, for the virus, and plans to intentionally spread the virus to non-white communities, among other things. Uh, Racists have also been crashing Zoom conferences to send racist and violent images and messages, which is um, a phenomenon that's called Zoom bombing. Uh, especially with so many college campuses trying to move everything online in short 
in a short amount of time, like there's been an uptick in racial slurs and other things just popping up when someone's trying to teach a class. Um, The current president has continued to call COVID-19 the Chinese virus. He's spreading lies about the country's readiness to go back to normal and also espousing fake cures. And all of these things are encouraging this rise in racist and xenophobic violence. And it's also encouraging people to violently resist stay-at-home orders. There's recent images that show angry white mobs demanding that their cities and state governments reject shelter-in-place orders so that they can reopen their economies and go back to work. And this has been the result of years of spreading disinformation and allowing far-right ideology to go completely unchecked and to not fully be monitored or addressed by law enforcement. Um, And that's a story for another day, like just how many people are in law enforcement that are sympathetic to these groups or are actually members of them. Synthony Miller Idris is an American university professor who runs a group called Peril, which is an extremism research lab. And the lab is trying to get rapid response grants to develop an awareness program and toolkit for parents and caregivers about the risks of online radicalization in the coronavirus era. So that's just one example of um, one group that's trying to coordinate like a real response to this new phenomenon where you have many, many, many children suddenly not going to school anymore. They're not interacting with different types of people like maybe they used to have coaches or teachers or classmates that could kind of redirect some of their thoughts but now they have endless hours where they're scrolling through social media and in chat rooms and god knows where else and unfortunately extremists see these children as prey So while these racist and violent elements are not new in this country, they're being emboldened by the current administration and the present health crisis. I wish that I had answers. I don't really have answers for how to solve the white nationalist problem. But what I will say is just like they are organizing, there are people organizing for the benefit of marginalized people every day. So they might not get as much news coverage And it's tempting to just stay on top of what's at the top of your feed. But I would encourage you to please like look up things that are happening in your neighborhood, things that are happening locally that you can get involved in. So while it's important to stay informed about what's happening on the far right, it's even more important to actually take action and organize with people that are in your community. And uh, if you check our show page on Facebook, it's just Objection to the Rule is the name. We're going to continue to provide links to news articles and also to organizations that are working to strengthen marginalized communities so that you can read up on them and see how you can get involved because we definitely need more of that Um sitting inside, looking at your four walls and just shaking your head at how bad things are isn't going to do anything. So please, if you can, like use whatever resources you have, whether it's your money, whether it's your time, signal boosting, reach out and find a way that we can counteract some of these um, nasty elements that we see cropping up these days. 
So that's it for me. This is Jasmine. I'm signing off. Thank you again for listening to Radio Free Brooklyn and enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Bye. And I'm going to, this is Emily. I'm going to hop in and do a little on-air read for Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, So here we go. Uh, Friends, COVID-19 is disrupting everyone's lives right now, and Radio Free Brooklyn is no exception. We want you to know that we have made every effort to ensure the health and well-being of our hosts, staff, and the community at large. We've closed both our studios and canceled live events, but our hosts are still doing their best to continue bringing new original programming by broadcasting live and pre-recording from their home studios, or by selecting the best rebroadcasts of their past shows. With most of our revenue streams evaporated, we need your help. We realize you may be hurting too, but if you can afford a small donation, it would go a long way toward helping us stay on the air. There are three ways you can help. First, you can give a one-time or monthly donation by going to radiofreebrooklyn.org donate. There you can find some great t-shirts, mugs, and other swag that we'd like to send you to say thanks. You can also use your phone to text RFBGIVE5, that's the number 5 at the end, to 44321. Again, that's RFBGIVE5 to 44321. It only takes a moment, and you'll be able to use your digital wallet for your donation. Finally, if you shop on Amazon, you can go to Amazon.com smile and register Radio Free Brooklyn as the nonprofit you wish to support. When you do, a percentage of your sales will go to RFB, and it will cost you nothing. No donation is too big or too small. Whatever you can afford will make a huge difference. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts, and we wish all our listeners health and happiness as we weather this storm together. Thank you. Let's take another break before we get into some more stories. Our next song today is called King James by Anderson Pack. We'll be right back. Just now. 
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, live on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we'll jump into some world news stories. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah with the world news today. And I'm, I'll be covering the China after the coronavirus. We have all been used to seeing China in the news since it began reporting about the coronavirus. They were the first to report cases, and it follows that they have a higher chance of seeing an end in sight. But what does that end look like, and will the U.S. face the same challenges once this is over? According to Reuters, China, which is the world's second largest economy behind the U.S., saw their GDP fall by 7% in Q1 due to coronavirus-driven shutdowns, declining for the first time since tracking began in 1992. Today, the same day that China's National Bureau of Statistics released these numbers, China also reissued numbers for the death toll in Wuhan, the outbreak's epicenter. 1,290 deaths were added to the count, now a total of 3,869, raising the death toll by a staggering 50%. The government has been accused by other world leaders of covering up the extent of the epidemic. The new totals were, were reported to have been reached by more detailed investigations and home deaths that had been previously unreported. According to the New York Times, underreporting in any country could be due to a number of factors, including testing speed and an overwhelmed healthcare system. China's current opportunity, and possibly responsibility, is to set a global example for how to respond to adjusting to post-pandemic life. Amid reports like the Washington Post's that warn censorship in China and other countries could prompt a resurgence in the pandemic, coupled with Trump's call for governors to create plans to reopen the economy, it's hard to know where to stand and what to believe. Some of the accusations against China that say that the nation was the cause of the pandemic, in addition to, to their cover-ups, has prompted a defensive backlash of nationalism, xenophobia, and racism in China. Congolese businessman Feli Mwamba, a resident of Hong Kong for 16 years, reported to the Times that he's been facing increasing racism toward foreigners and more specifically black people, as he said, they are being targeted as carriers of the virus, being corralled into forced quarantine, etc. While we haven't been forcing quarantine, this 
behavior reminds me of the way that Chinese and East Asian people have been treated in New York and leads me to wonder if our either our government or the Chinese government will recognize its role in promoting nationalism and leading to prejudice and fear. This is obviously a moment for world leadership and collaboration, and there are positive advances that people need to be aware of, as well as the negative effects. I hope that journalists located in China can do their due diligence in disseminating information to the public so that nations can work together to create solutions. I'm planning, hopefully, to follow up with this story next week in an interview with an epidemiologist working for the World Health Organization in Thailand. Hopefully, he will be able to give us a few answers from the other side of the globe and insight into what health experts are actually saying. See you guys next week. Happy Sunday, everyone. And thank you so much for listening to Objection to the Rule. This is Teresa Robinson with the World News segment that I'd like to call Prohibition 2020 featuring South Africa. I have drawn this review from a few articles, one particularly from CNBCAfrica.com and also the World Health Organization. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa refused to lift a ban on alcohol during a nationwide lockdown set to last until the end of April. The sale of alcohol and cigarettes has been prohibited in South Africa since the start of the lockdown on March 27. The Gatung Liquor Forum, which represents thousands of small businesses, has threatened court action over the impact of the decision on its members. In a statement made this week to defend his decision, the president said, quote, There are proven links between the sale and consumption of alcohol and violent crime, motor vehicle accidents, and other medical emergencies at a time when public and private resources should be preparing to receive and treat vast numbers of COVID-19 patients, end quote. Since the lockdown began, liquor shops have been looted, and there has been an increase in online searches of how to brew alcohol at home. The World Health Organization during a briefing in Europe on Wednesday, called on governments around the world to tighten restrictions on the access to alcohol during lockdown, saying consumption can increase the risk of catching the coronavirus and worsen chances of recovery once contracted. At times of lockdown during the COVID-19 pandemic, alcohol consumption can exasperate health vulnerability, risk-taking behaviors, mental health issues, and violence. Program Manager for the Alcohol and Illicit Drugs Program of the World Health Organization, Karina Faria Borges, made a statement saying, During the COVID-19 pandemic, we should really ask ourselves what risk we are taking in leaving people under lockdown in their homes with the substance that is harmful to both them and their health and the effects of their behavior on others, which include violence. South Africa's total number of cases is the highest on the continent, And this is also a reflection of much more extensive testing and tracing than anywhere else. There have been so far reported 3,924 cases on the continent, according to Africa's Union Center for Disease Control. But the experts do say that this figure is underestimated. Though South Africa has a young population and COVID-19 is deadlier among older people, there are millions who are vulnerable because of HIV or malnutrition. The healthcare system has long had an acute lack of resources and critical facilities remain extremely limited despite recent efforts to expand capacity. Health officials across Africa know hospitals can deal with only a fraction of those needing care if the virus spreads through crowded cities, remote villages, and among extremely vulnerable populations, which include a large number of refugee communities. 
Africa is seen as particularly vulnerable to the disaster. And combined with the slump in demand for minerals and tourism, together with the lockdown to stem the spread of COVID-19, this could be detrimental to already weakened economies. The pandemic will likely kill at least 300,000 Africans and risk pushing 29 million into extreme poverty, according to UN Economic Commission for Africa. Professor Charles Perry, director of the Alcohol, Tobacco and Drug Research Unit of South Africa Medical Research Council, said greater restrictions such as reducing the sizes of alcohol containers, a ban on alcohol advertising, and making cheap alcohol more expensive are some of the long-term measures the country could adopt to reduce heavy drinking and the burden of alcohol use on the health and trauma centers in Africa. Be safe, everyone. And we're going to take one more quick musical break before we come back with a little bit of good news, which we all need right now. This is the Polyphonic Spree with their cover of Nirvana's Lithium. Enjoy, and we'll be right back. I'm so happy Cause today I found my friends They're in my head I'm so ugly But that's okay Cause so are you We broke our mirrors Sunday morning Is every day For all I care But I'm not scared Light my candles In a daze Cause I found God I'm so ugly, 
And welcome back. This is Emily Scott. And finally, for a little bit of good news. While there is very little that's good about the numbers surrounding the coronavirus in New York, the U.S., and the world, when forced with such a dark shift in our reality, it can be cathartic to try and find a silver lining. And here are a few of them. Uh, Once again, the numbers are showing that social distancing is working, y'all. Uh, CNN reported last week that, according to data modeling from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington in Seattle, the estimated number of deaths due to the coronavirus has dropped dramatically. Previously, an estimated 82,000 people would die by August, and that number has been lowered by almost 20,000, and that is due to the behavioral changes of the population. Uh, so keep up the good work and don't lose hope doing nothing and going nowhere has never been more powerful uh story number two in our good news list uh for the first time in decades people in india can see the himalayas which are over a hundred miles away and that's due to reduced air pollution directly related to the coronavirus lockdown according to cnn quote delhi saw up to a 44 percent reduction in pm10 air pollution levels on the first day of its restrictions Uh, India's Central Pollution Control Board found. The PM10 standard measures airborne particulates 10 micrometers or smaller in diameter. The report said that in total, 85 cities across India saw less air pollution in the first weeks of the nationwide lockdown. Meanwhile, the air quality in Jalandhar has been measured as, quote, as 
what's called good on the country's national index for 16 of the 17 days since the nationwide lockdown was announced. By contrast, the same 17-day period last year failed to register a single day of good air quality. The period has therefore marked an unintended but welcome breath of fresh air for the country's crowded and polluted cities. India is home to 21 of the 30 worst polluted urban areas in the world, according to data compiled by IQ Air Air Visuals 2019 World Air Quality Report, with six in the top 10. End quote. Again, that's all from CNN. Um, And that's pretty amazing. They can see the uh, the Himalayas from 100 miles away for the first time in something like 30 years. Uh, And finally, one last good news story, Um, a little bit closer to home. Uh, According to data from a NASA satellite, the northeastern U.S. is currently experiencing about a 30% drop in air pollution compared to this time period in the previous five years. An instrument on the satellite is measuring atmospheric nitrogen dioxide, which is, quote, primarily emitted from burning fossil fuels for testing, testing, hello, hello, which is, quote, primarily emitted from burning fossil fuels for transportation and electricity generation, end quote. That's from NASA. And according to the report from NASA's website, Quote, though variations in weather from year to year cause variations in the monthly means for individual years, March 2020 shows the lowest monthly atmospheric nitrogen dioxide levels of any March during the OMI, which is the Ozone Monitoring Instrument data record, which spans 2005 to the present, end quote. So that's all from NASA, and that's all pretty amazing. That's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thanks for listening. You can catch all our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or anywhere you can find iTunes podcasts. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to play you out with our final song of the day. This is Together Again by Janet Jackson. Be safe. See you next week. There are times when I look Yeah.